uh, he is Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine and Director of the Geriatric Psychiatry Fellowship Program in the Dartmouth Memory Clinic. He's the founder and director of the Upper Valley uh, Memory Cafe, the Gene Anderson Alzheimer's Disease and Support Education Fund, and director of memory care services at Wheelock Terrace Assisted Living. Um, he's certified in, uh, in geriatric uh, psychiatry, and, and uh, he has conducted research in clinical and neuropsychological and MRI correlations of myocognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease, and also behavioral symptoms of dementia, which he frequently talks about, but won't be here today. He's authored a number of books on Alzheimer's disease and memory. He's been a contributor to, uh, uh, to books on uh, palliative care and dementia, and has written a number of uh, articles over the years, and really has been just an outstanding advocate uh, for uh, people with dementia, and uh, has uh, a, a wonderful rec re reputation in the community for being available to family caregivers and, and supporting them in the, in the journey. And, uh, I've been hearing lots of concern about him uh, moving on, but we are working to rebuild uh, that team and making sure that we've got uh, him continued to be uh, consulting to us as we go forward. Um, as we're dealing with technical, like, are we about to? We're almost ready. That's okay. Keep talking. Yeah. Keep talking. Okay. <laughs> Anyone? Uh, the weather's been pretty difficult lately, hasn't it? <laughs> So we, um, just to give you a sense of um, also the, the context here as we go forward, just filling in the time here, is, as you keep your eye on the website for other conferences. You know, if you have any suggestions, Dementia and Sexuality, uh, dementia and sexuality May 29th. Uh, really, uh, we, we're, I think we'll get lots of interest in that non-controversial topic. Uh, but it's going to be a really interesting conference that obviously uh, is something that comes up for families, particularly in long-term care facilities, and we'll be talking about and having experts talk about that topic. Um, and as we go forward, we'll uh, continue to be focusing on topics that you're interested. So please feel free to email us at, our, at the Geriatric Education Center and um, letting us know if there's specific uh, topics that we're not covering since that's our mission, which is to provide uh, the type of education and training that's hopefully useful to you. So good. Okay, not a not a river in Egypt is the topic of this uh, top, and uh, I'll be looking forward to uh, hearing from my good friend, Bob. Thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate that. Good morning. Um, I'm going to talk about denial and uh, really the broader concepts related. Thank you. I'll just put it down here. I'll put it over here. Uh, and I'll explain in a moment why that's related to the topic of this conference. I'm sure you've heard this phrase, denial not just a river in Egypt. Uh, it's uh, attributed to uh, Mark Twain, but I'm not sure if that's correct. Here are the objectives. I'm going to discuss the meaning of denial in common parlance and, and what it actually means clinically, which is a little different. I'm going to talk about a concept that we're developing uh, that is, of which denial is a part. We're calling discordance, and I'll discuss that and what's involved. Review the relationship between this concept of discordance or denial plus and caregiver stress and talk some about how to lessen this problem.
So what is denial? And as I said, I'm going to talk about it in terms of its common parlance, and we all kind of know how that's used, but also what the psychological meaning is. If we think about how we use this term in, in uh, everyday speech, it has to do with not with hiding something or, or consciously not conveying something you know to be true or, or you wish certainly wasn't true. See if the sound is here. He's, I don't know what happened to the video on here, but uh, he's, he's saying, I did not have sex with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. Um, this is another one. This is, I say a day without denial is a, is a day you've got to face. From now on, I'm not going to think about anything that's unpleasant. Isn't that pretty self a pretty self-deceiving way to go through life? I'm not going to think about that. <laughs> and one more, sweeping it under the rug. What are you doing, Wanda? I'm trying to get this spot off the floor. Let's see, where's this one here? What do you think it is? I have no idea. Did you try this stuff? Yep, didn't touch it. How about this one? Twice. Well, I know one thing that'll work for sure. What's that, paint thinner, acetone? She puts the rug over it. Denial, you're good. Well, we all know what that's about. And, that, and really, all of those examples are consciously deciding to put something away, to put it under the rug. Whereas clinically, when we use the term, it's an automatic action. It's an unconscious action where uh, we re reject thoughts feelings, wishes, things that we really are unable to cope with, would be unable to cope with, if it came fully into consciousness. Someone mentioned addiction a little while ago, and this is certainly one of the big areas where this concept applies. And certainly we see denial in the earlier form that I talked about, where people are simply consciously being deceptive. But I think it's very important to realize that in addiction, denial, the really malignant form of denial that keeps the addiction going, or that allows the addiction to keep going, is an unconscious process. Really, you could sum it up by this, I could quit whenever I want, whether it's alcohol, or cigarettes, or IV drugs, or gambling, or you know, many other addictions. We all think that we are in control of our behaviors. We like to believe that. And we all use denial to some extent uh, because it's really a normal part of day-to-day -day life. I think of it as an emotional sort of shock absorber to keep us from having to face square on some of the things that are very difficult to have to face. But it can easily become overblown, utilized too rigidly, unconsciously, and gets very much in our way. Denial in dementia is one element of this concept that I want to introduce that uh, has to do with simply the individual who is demented and his care partner, spouse, adult child, whoever is most involved, simply don't agree on what the problem is, or even if it, there is a problem indeed. And we call this, uh, in this study we're doing, and I'll describe in a little while, 
discordance. So we're looking at this aspect of uh, this important phenomenon, I believe, in uh, dementia, which is discordance. And anyone who's worked with people with dementia know that certainly early on, but really to some extent throughout the, the disease, this issue of the individual who's ill and the family don't see eye to eye on what's wrong. And this is a major problem that we face. So discordance is defined simply as the discrepancy between how the person with dementia views his or her difficulties, cognitive, functional, behavioral, and how the caregiver or the family view them. And uh, there's also, which I'll get to in a little while, an emotional component to that, an interpersonal component, which I think is really the central element, but I'll, I'll come back to that. It isn't always, although it's most of the time the case that the, the uh, individual who's demented f is less concerned or feels the problem is less of a problem or it doesn't exist than the caregiver, but it can be the other way around. We occasionally see that. Discordance simply means there's a difference between how the two see it. Why is this important? Well, as I said, it's extremely common. And I believe from doing this uh, for many years, it's a major source of burden for the caregiver, as well as patient distress. And it, as I said, it occurs particularly early in the illness when the illness is just sort of becoming becoming visible to people, but it really does occur throughout. Uh-oh. What happened here? Oh, hit the wrong button. So why, uh, what does this have to do with making decisions? It has everything to do with it. If the patient and everybody else doesn't agree that two and two is four, or don't agree that there are significant cognitive or functional or problems, how can any decisions be reasonably made unless and until something happens that the individual goes to guardianship, the guardianship is awarded and it is now the caregiver who is making all of the decisions. That rarely happens in dementia. It only happens late in the game and when there's significant disagreement. But for most people, that does not come up. But certainly, this issue of disagreement is present all the time. Not, not all the time, but much of the time. So what are the components of this? Well, certainly, denial is one element. This is really something that Freud uh, first identified. Sigmund Freud, you, I'm certain, recognize him over here. His own denial was that uh, his Cigar smoking was uh, uh, not going to be hazardous to his health, although he died from oral cancer, um, and became addicted to mor morphine or opium before that happened. Denial is an unconscious psychological process. I don't want to sound too much like the psychoanalyst that I trained as, but I'm, I do think it's important to recognize that, at least as we use the term clinically, we're talking about something that is not in conscious control. It is something that is applied automatically by an individual who doesn't wish to face something. 
And certainly this is one of the elements of discordance, and it's the title of this talk, but I've cheated because I'm really broadening the talk from uh, denial into all of the other elements of discordance. And I can't tell you which is the most important of the various elements that I'm going to discuss now. I think it varies from person to person and from time to time. And I can't really measure how much is one and how much is the other. But these are the things that seem to be a part of it that I would tease out. Another and very common, uh, widely used uh, concept is that of anosognosia, which is a neurologic concept that really refers to an inability to tell that you're ill. And this can happen in a stroke patient who's uh, especially a stroke that occurs in the right side of the brain where an individual may not be able to move their left arm, let's say, but uh, the doctor says, can you move your left arm? And they move their right arm. He says, no, move your left arm. He says, well, it's tired. I don't feel like doing it. They really, that's not playing games. They really don't understand that it doesn't move. It's, it's part of the brain that controls that awareness seems to be gone. So it's really an anatomical that uh, deficit that occurs in that case due to stroke, in dementia due to the dementia, and other illnesses such as schizophrenia. This is something that, that someone here, Laura Flashman, has done a great deal of work on. And it's also referred to as unawareness or lack of insight. Now this is just from uh, one of the papers that looks at the lack of insight in Schizophrenia. This is not dementia, but it really points out, if you look at this, uh, uh, this uh, PET scan, the area of decreased function in the precuneus, which is up in the parietal lobe, in the back part of the parietal lobe, in schizophrenia. And you can see, I think, that the person here who has altered insight, let's say poor insight, doesn't recognize their illness, has less volume in this area, less function in this area, I should say, than someone whose insight is preserved. So this is one element that helps us understand. This is really a neurologic component and certainly very much uh, a component in dementia, although that has really not been studied in terms of its anatomical placement. That's something that we hope to do, although uh, uh, it's not clear whether we're going to be able to do that. We hope so. What's the difference really between denial and anosognosia? Is it just the difference between a Freudian speaking and a neuropsychologist speaking? Or is there some basic difference between the two? And I believe that we're talking about two different but obviously very related concepts. I cannot prove that. But I think heuristically it's useful to think in these terms that we're talking about two different things and a few others which I'll show in a little while. Denial is, is indeed a psychological concept which we, we use uh, in a variety of areas where, where it's not at all clear necessarily that brain uh, anatomical changes have taken place, although we don't know that. Denial is potentially reducible, whereas anosognosia is a really rather fixed thing. It's related to damage to loss of neurons and that's not likely to improve. In fact, it tends to worsen, at least in the case of dementia, as the illness progresses, which I'll go into. The other thing that I think is part of this discordance 
uh, and is often confused with forgetful with uh, denial is simple forgetting. People who have dementia don't remember that they don't remember. They forget that they forget, which is something that families will often say, or individuals will. You know, and I often feel like an idiot when I see patients in the office who, for a new evaluation, and I say, well, tell me the kinds of things you have trouble remembering. And they always look at me and say, well, I don't remember. <laughs> and they're right, of course, and I'm asking a dumb question. But the individual may simply not remember that he doesn't recall well. That, that piece gets forgotten. And I think another final element of that, maybe not the final, but the, the fourth element that I'm identifying anyway, is a sense of shame and stigma. Unfortunately, there remains an enormous stigma and shame associated with dementia. That's lessened over the years, probably. I think Ronald Reagan's going public with his Alzheimer's helped with that. But it still exists, just as it does in the case of mental illness or substance abuse. Stigma is a very real part of this illness, and it's part of the challenge that has to be overcome in trying to treat someone in their family who has dementia. So that part of why, and this gets probably into the area of consciousness, although it's, a, it's very difficult to tell, part of the issue is that people are disparaged because they don't remember. You know, we think of them as, as not trying or worse, stupid, or we think they're doing it on purpose, just try harder. Um, and people who have dementia are very aware of this in most cases. They're, they may not be aware of what's going on in their brain very well, but they're very aware of how they're perceived by others, particularly when that perception is a negative one and a pre prejudicial one. And they understandably may try to minimize that, may try to, to uh, lessen that out of a sense of shame uh, and because of the stigma that's associated with this. So this is really one of the one of the major hurdles I think in in dealing with this disease, whether it's getting people in for an evaluation or getting them to accept treatment or simply dealing with how they feel about themselves and their illness over the course of time. It's a very big element that still needs to be wrestled with. It can be lessened to some degree. There are various things that I think make a difference with that, whether it's a variety of activities like memory cafe or simple ways of including the individual that don't make them feel worse about themselves. It can, this sense of stigma can be lessened in individual cases, but it's still very much a societal issue. So here's an example. You like these, you like this peop, these people? I think they're, they're my favorite couple. Wife, he broke the headlight and ruined the fender of the car hitting a hydrant. Husband, I'm a good driver. I've never had an accident or even put a dent in the car. Have we ever heard that? Has that <laughs> kind of thing ever come up? No, never. What is this? Is it anosognosia? Does he simply, is he simply unaware that he's not a good driver and he's had problems? Is he in denial about it? Is it blocked out conscious of consciousness? 
does he fear being disapproved of socially because he's you know, a bad driver? Does he forget that he's not a good driver? Does he forget that time that he hit the, fire, the hydrant and dented the car? Is he merely prevaricating, or to put it more bluntly, is he lying? Is it all of the above? Well, who knows? What, anybody have an opinion? What's going on here? I, I can't hear. What? It's all of the above. It may be all. Who knows what it is? It's probably some element in, in differing proportions of all of the above. And this is what makes this a complex, <clears throat> excuse me, a complex issue to try to, to understand and to work with. Because all of these things are involved when there is this basic disagreement. You're a lousy driver. I'm a good driver. We hear that every day in the office. Sometimes, and this is, I've, I've changed a few things in these slides from the handout, and this, this slide actually was mislabeled as uh, discordance in the other direction. It's really not that at all. It's exaggerated discordance. And sometimes we see individuals who are really not very impaired at all, who because of the nature of their longstanding relationship with their caregiver, their spouse, the caregiver or, tends to really overstate the problem enormously. So that the reality, as best we can tell, is far less severe than what the individual says. And this usually implies a very significant marital problem or parent-child problem. Um, but it's another, it's another form of discordance it's where it really is exaggerated. It also does happen the other way where a patient says, I've got terrible problems. And the spouse says, he's fine. And this could be depression. It could be what I've referred to as cognitive hypochondriasis, somebody who is aware of changes that occur with normal aging and is very, very preoccupied by those and hypochondriacal about them in a way. <clears throat> but, the, but the example here is really one of exaggerated discordance. So, so there are a lot of different flavors that this can take. What I really want to emphasize, though, is, uh, first of all, not only how, how much discordance interferes with being able to make reasonable decisions. You have to be on the same page if the person who's ill and the person who's helping them with their decisions, their care partner, if they, are, if they are somewhat on the same page, they can work together. When they're on different pages, this is a very complicated process. But I also want to really focus on how much this causes burden, and this is something that we're looking at. This is a study that was published a couple of years ago, well, 2011, 2012. Burden associated with the presence of anosognosia. Now, if you look at the literature, in this area in dementia. First of all, there isn't much. Uh, there's much more uh, in other areas, uh, but in, in dementia there's not all that much. And w I think all of it gets looked at as anosognosia where it may be more complicated. Be that as it may, they, it's easiest to measure anosognosia. Uh, and uh, that may be why a lot of the studies look at that, but they don't get into what havoc does this cause 
in the relationship. They look at the endpoint of that, such as the burden on the caregiver, but not exactly how that happens, which I'll come to in a little while. Anyway, here's a study that was published in International Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry done in, in Spain. 124 people with Alzheimer's and 124 caregivers. They uh, determined anosognosia by the clinical judgment. So the clinician, clinician said, yeah, he's got a lot of it, or no, he doesn't. Pretty, pretty crude measure, but it was how they looked at this. And they measured caregiver burden by an extremely commonly used tool, the Zaret Burden Interview, which we also use. What they found was that on this measure, a quarter of patients, approximately, had what they described as anosognosia. I think if you look more broadly at discordance, it's a far greater percentage, but be that as it may, they found a quarter of people based on where the clinician just judged it. And they found that, I think what happened was, frankly, <clears throat> frankly that what they called anosognosia was severe anosognosia that allowed the clinician to say, oh yeah, he's got it. And that's why uh, it was a relatively small percentage and that it led to an increase in caregiver burden. The more the patient was unaware of his or her difficulties, the greater the burden on the caregiver. And they felt that anosognosia explained about 15% of the variance in, these, in the caregiver burden. What they found was that anosognosia in patients with Alzheimer's is an independent factor that increases caregiver burden by increasing the physical wear and tear on the caregiver. He or she has to be much more involved because the patient's unaware of what's wrong and they've got to go chasing after them and so forth. They tend to be more socially isolated and dependent. And here they refer finally to the tensions in the relationship between the individual and the patient. I have a feeling that's really the centerpiece of it. <clears throat> we look at discordance in that way. We, we look at, and we're doing a study that we began last fall in new evaluations of patients that we, these, these slides, a couple slides here were not in the handout. They were added more recently, like an hour ago. Um, <laughs> Actually, actually, that's a lie. One of the slides I added about five minutes before I started talking. <laughs> so as we look at this, we're really trying to identify the domains of this concept of discordance. And one is certainly unawareness. This, the, this is simply what the individual isn't aware of in terms of his or her symptoms, and it's measured quite simply by taking what the patient says about his symptoms, taking what the caregiver says, and subtracting. It's a mathematical uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, function there. And the second part that has not been talked as much about in the literature, and this is why we're looking at this, is what I've clumsily referred to here as the interpersonal or emotional component. I'm not, I'm not sure what the best terminology is for that, but it really has to do with the heat that gets generated 
between the patient and his or her care person by the fact of this disagreement. Here are some of the elements. This is the one I added five minutes before. These are some of the elements where we, which we look at in the caregiver. We address, we uh, question the caregiver. How concerned or worried are you? How resistant is the individual to accepting help? How resistant is he or she to even discussing the problem? How defensive is the patient? <clears throat> Excuse me. How angry do you feel about this? How much do you and he argue, or you and she argue? Is there distress? As you can see, there's a lot of overlap in these questions. Does the individual engage in unsafe behaviors based on his or her unawareness of the illness? And how much do you have to use some deception in order to deal with it? How much do you sort of have to manipulate the individual? Well, you can't drive today because the car is uh, not working. Or, you know, the car, whatever. Those kinds of things come up all the time I would, that I'm referring to as deception. And what we've found, and we've just looked at 18 families so far, but we're continuing this, this next year, is that, and I know this is, in fact, the yellow line is impossible to see here, and that's the important one. So I'll have to describe it to you, and you have to take my word for it. Uh, I apologize for that. I didn't realize that. But um, the, this line here, this yellow line, is the affective component of discordance, which really is the measure of those questions I've just shown you. And on this axis is how burdened the caregiver feels, very little burden, a great deal of burden. And on this axis is the various scores on total discordance, the affective component, and the unawareness component. And this yellow line, which you can't see, but trust me, it's there, is the most significant in this small sample. We have a R-square value of 0.54. Total discordance is less, 0.48. And actually, the, the awareness score, there was a great deal of scatter. And again, this may clarify with a larger sample size, but that does not look very significant, 0.19. It actually graphs out there that way, but there's so much scatter that it's not really very reliable. This is very preliminary. This is just 18 families, so uh, a year from now, I hope we'll have more uh, data on this that will uh, give us better information about this. So what, but at least preliminary, what we, find, we found, and we should stop here because this fits our hypothesis, and heaven forbid we keep collecting the data, and it may not, um, is that the greater the level of discordance between an, an individual and his caregiver, the greater the caregiver burden is. And of that discordance, the, by far the more important factor is this emotional interpersonal factor. And that's exactly what this data show. But we could lose that as we look at greater numbers, although I'm sure we won't. Let me just show you a couple of other studies that uh, uh, relate to this area. This was actually an award at the International Psychogeriatrics Association. Awareness and behavioral problems in dementia patients. 
And this was done in Maastricht and in Belgium. And here they had 199 patients that were followed for 18 months. <clears throat> they looked at mood and behavioral problems in these individuals using two good scales, the Cornell scale for depression and dementia and the neuropsychiatric inventory, which measures a variety of different neuropsychiatric behaviors. And they used, again, I think a rather crude measure, but uh, the guidelines for the rating of awareness deficits, or the, the GRAD, which compares caregiver and patient assessments. They just took one, took the other, and subtracted <clears throat> as a measure of how much anosognosia they had. So if the patient caregiver said, he doesn't remember anything, and the patient himself says, well, my memory's a little bad, there's significant anosognosia there. If the caregiver says, he's a, a, a pretty good driver, and the patient says, I'm a pretty good driver, there's no anosognosia there, just simple measurement. <clears throat> what they found, I think, which is interesting that it's such a big difference, but this correlates more with what I think is probably going on, they found over 80% of the patients showed some impairment in awareness. I think when they measured it rather than just sort of globally assessed it, uh, this is what they came up with. And they found that greater awareness was associated with individuals who were younger, who were male, and that certainly doesn't fit my expectation, but curious, and those who had a higher economic status and socio social status. And they felt that they found that awareness diminished as the disease progressed, which is certainly what one might expect. They found that those who had a higher awareness of, of their impairment were more likely to show depression and anxiety, whereas those who had very little awareness of their impairment were more likely to have psychotic symptoms or a lot of apathy in uh, just not being interested in doing anything. Those individuals who had the most apathy and psychosis were the least aware of their symptoms. And this is just a study that I'll mention to indicate that this is not a problem that begins uh, in the midst of Alzheimer's. This is a problem that begins very early on. People already with mild cognitive impairment tend to have some degree of unawareness. It's interesting because if you look at people who have pre-MCI, it's often the case that they have a great deal of concern about their symptoms. Again, they almost seem hypochondriacal because their symptoms are almost immeasurable, but they're aware of something. Whereas by the time they progress to the point where they have mild cognitive impairment, they are beginning to lose that awareness. They're beginning to lose that degree of concern. It's not uncommon for us to see patients one year in the office who coming in, or are coming in with a great deal of, of worry about their memory, a great deal of concern about these symptoms. When they test out, they're really not that bad, but they may have some, some degree of notable impairment. 
And then they come back and you say, how's your memory? And they say, it's terrible. That's why I'm here. Well, then they come back a year or two later when they're really well into their dementia and you say, how's your memory? And they say, not too bad. <laughs> Same person, much worse memory if you test it out. Complete or, or much more significant loss of awareness. This is an almost invariable phenomenon. And you wait another year or two and ask the same question of the same person. How's your memory? He says, my memory's fine. I have no memory problems. I'm not kidding. So this just really uh, summarizes what I've just said. So this is all well and good, but what do we do about it? Do I still have to, I'm afraid I still have time, I have to talk about this. <laughs> well, it's not easy, but I think, and the reason I'm talking about this really is because I think these issues do need to be addressed. I think that the f family, let's say the husband and wife, where the husband has dementia and the wife does not and is the primary caregiver, where they can't talk about the illness, where they can't talk about this most important thing that's ever happened in their marriage, but there can be no discussion of it because there's so much discord and so much interpersonal tension about it. That creates an almost impossible situation for, <clears throat> for the caregiver and not to mention for the healthcare providers trying to take care of the individual. But the important issue is how difficult that is for the caregiver to work with. I've already outlined the elements of uh, discordance as we see them, and I think that probably anosognosia is not something that one can change. Um, but denial and the fears of social stigma are things that can and need to be addressed. And those, when properly addressed, can lessen this abyss that exists between a patient and his spouse or his caregiver, her caregiver, uh, and can make the wife much easier for all concerned. Doesn't make the illness better, it just makes coping with it a lot easier. But one of the things that is important, and I see this a lot in the office, is when we see patients who are in denial, where it's really fixed, or have some degree of discordance one or the other, the family has to get on the get on the right track before you're going to get anywhere with the patient. If the family is in denial, even to some degree, about the severity of the illness or its existence, there's no hope that you can break down the denial in the patient. No help. No hope. I always remember this patient that I had years ago who I was seeing for the first time. I, I hope I haven't told this to too many of you before, but I've, I know I've told this story before. I was seeing this patient for the first time, uh, he and his uh, spouse, and I greet them in the waiting room and walk down to my office, which is a fairly long walk, 
And on the way down, the patient's wife pulls me aside and says, if he has dementia, don't tell him. It'll kill him. Or if he has Alzheimer's, I guess it was. And so I take that in. <clears throat> now you tell me. Um, and while we almost get to my office, and the patient sort of slows down, pulls me aside, and says, if I have Alzheimer's, don't tell my family. It'll kill him. This was uh, a fully idea, really, of denial, where neither party wanted to face it, but, but the, the issue had to be faced. In fact, he did have Alzheimer's, and it needed to be faced, and we talked about it. But it's often that, they, that the individual thinks it's the other person who's not going to be able to handle it. Excuse me just a sec. The other thing that's uh, important to keep in mind in work, and you'll, you'll see that I think that a lot of breaking down denial or lessening discordance is working with families, and how families discuss the situation with the individual, really how they feel about it, has everything to do with the amount of social stigma and shame that the individual feels. So again, if the family thinks that this is pretty terrible, pretty shameful that dad is forgetting. You can be sure that dad feels that way in spades. And that is something you may need to work with before you can really begin to approach the patient on it. Everyone in the family has to be on the same page. It, you know, you can't have, let's say, a family with three adult children and a wife and the husband has dementia, and the wife and two of the children want to confront dad, and one of the children says, yeah, he's not so bad, usually his son will say, he's not so bad. If, if that happens, who does dad listen to? The son. So the, and this, the same would be true if one was uh, having an intervention, let's say, with somebody who's an alcoholic and in denial, or has some other substance abuse. Everybody's got to be on the same page and not gang up on the individual necessarily, but have a meeting of the minds where people can get together and say in a somewhat unified way, this is what we think is going on. It's not your fault, because heaven knows, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll get Alzheimer's to drive my family crazy. Nobody ever says it. This is not your fault. This is common among people in your age group. I always say that because... It helps people feel they're not so out there. And of course, it is reality. But these are, some things, these are things that we need to face in order to help you cope best with it. And those are messages that families certainly need to give. It's not your fault. Pretty common. But it is present. And we have to deal with it. Being able to talk openly about that elephant in the room, about the illness with the person who has Alzheimer's and other close family or friends significantly reduces the burden that care partners feel and makes it much, much easier for them. And this I hear every week in support groups, every meeting of a support group that I uh, run, and I've been running a couple of support groups a month. Families will always acknowledge, and usually, you know, in a support group, there are people there who are coming and who are newer at it than people who are 
not so new at it who've been dealing with it. And the people who have been dealing, people who are new at it are saying, I can't get anywhere with him. He won't acknowledge there's anything wrong. And the people who have been there for a while are, and have been able to have more of a discussion with their loved one are the ones who will try to convince the person that you've really got to be able to talk about this. Once you do that, things are going to get a whole lot better. Easier said than done, but it really is true. But it's important to realize that any discussion that, if, that you, as a clinician or a family member, has with somebody who is demented is, and who is in denial or uh, discordance about their problems, it's a part of the reason for this, and I'm not sure that this really is reflected properly in the four points I've talked about, discordance, is that it is extremely assaultive to someone's sense of self-esteem to tell them you have a lousy memory. And hopefully you don't never put it that way. But you have to realize how sensitive people are whose memory is impaired to being told about it. That's part of why they're in denial about it. That's a big reason why they're in denial about it. Because to, to, to face that reality makes us feel very bad about ourselves. Imagine, I mean, all our lives, from the day you started school and started taking tests, all the way to the present, how well you remember is what's valued. You remember everything, you get an A on the test. That's terrific. You're a great guy. You're going you're gonna to go into the advanced class and blah, blah, blah. You're going to do well. When you get into the workforce, how well you can remember, you're, you're a salesman, how well you remember everybody's name and what their kids are called and all this, you know, that's going to make a big difference in how successful you are. So all our, and those are just a couple of silly examples, but it's really true that as a society we value our cognitive abilities, our memory abilities, very highly. We depend on them to be sure. And somehow our sense of self-esteem is completely tied up with those. I say somehow, but it's, it probably relates to all that praise or non-praise we got when we were in school and throughout life. You're good if you, if you remember well. You're not good if you don't. So it's a tremendous assault on someone's sense of self-esteem to confront them with the fact that they're having memory problems. So it needs to be done very carefully. The problem that happens is that <clears throat> when <clears throat> one of the problems that happens is when families feel we simply can't do that, we can't talk about it because it's, it makes them too mad or gets them too upset, they're going to talk about it because they're going to talk about it when they get angry about something. And that's when they're going to say, don't you remember? How come you never remember? They're going to get mad and say it all the wrong ways in ways that reinforce that sense of low self-esteem and reinforce the, de the denial and the discordance. <clears throat> so it really doesn't need to be talked about. But a way it needs to be talked about, one, one aspect of that is that anything that's said about cognitive losses has to be paired with something the individual still does well something that they can feel positive about. And all people with 
Alzheimer's have preserved abilities. It's not that everything goes at the same rate. Maybe you can't remember well, but you can still sing beautifully. Or whatever. It's often related to things like music and other non-cognitive uh, um, uh, endeavors. Maybe, maybe the uh, person who is beginning to be forgetful is um, uh, <clears throat> still very good at uh, doing work out in the garden or whatever it is. And so families have to find ways, and this isn't to be, this is not to be um, uh, patronizing, but genuinely find ways to focus to need to find what's still positive, what's still working very well, and emphasize that while talking about what's not working as well. It, in, the pill has to go down so it can't taste too badly. Very often in the office when I confront this, well, you know, I'll say, well, you know, you're, 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 mem you're remembering a lot of things. This is somebody who's getting, let's say, a cognitive score of 12 out of 30. Well, you're remembering, you're remembering a lot of things here, but I think we can both agree your memory's probably not as good as it once was. It's pretty good. That's the lie. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's pretty good. And what we want to do is try to keep it from getting any worse. It's very hard for a patient to disagree with that. If you give a cognitive test and say, boy, you really screwed this up, you're going to for sure run into some resistance. But if you present it in this way, well, you know, you, you remembered one of those words. There's some people who don't remember any of them. I say that exact thing a lot of the time. You really need to find something that the person, and without being patronizing, because that can be sensed, you need to find something, whether you're the clinician or whether you're making a recommendation to the family. And the reason is because that it's, a, it's an issue of self-esteem. People often don't realize what an assault on self-esteem having dementia is. It makes you feel bad about yourself. And we'll all do anything we can to try to avoid that. But at the same time, we can't pussyfoot around about it. We should not avoid the use of the word Alzheimer's. There are some families who absolutely don't want it used. And there are some clinical situations where you may make that decision. Usually I find that when the, more f the families are very insistent about not using the word, it's them that have the problem with it, not the patient. There are exceptions to that. There is no evidence, and this has been looked at in the literature a number of times, there's no evidence that telling someone they have Alzheimer's hurts them. That doesn't mean they like hearing it. They usually have some idea. There's, it's, one of the things that I rarely see with patients when I tell them that they have Alzheimer's is surprise, rarely. But if it's done correctly, which is not to say, well, I've discovered based on my test that you did so poorly on that you have Alzheimer's and you're going to be in the nursing home within two years and walk out of the room. That is not the way to do it, though that happens frequently. But finding a way to discuss it, to say, and here's another one of the lies that I will often give, well, yes, you, I think you do have a little bit of Alzheimer's. It's like you have a little bit of pregnancy. 
There's no evidence that this does harm. Of course there might be exceptions, and I don't want to say this uniformly 100% of the time, but I believe that you're far better off calling, what, what's the expression? Calling a spade a spade. Thank you, I was having a senior moment there. Calling a spade a spade from the beginning and, and not dancing around it. And in doing so, as a clinician, you're also modeling for the family what needs to be done. And if you're not actually doing that, I think making those recommendations clearly to families that this is how to approach it. Let's talk. We need to talk about it. Talking about it is less frightening than not talking about it. But, you know, as, as I showed in this other page, as, as people become more aware of their illness, one of the reasons they've been blocking it out in order to avoid being anxious and depressed, that may come more to the surface. So there, you may see as people become more aware of their dementia that they do become more anxious and depressed. That doesn't mean you were wrong in telling them any more than telling a patient who has cancer that they have cancer and then finding that they get depressed means that you shouldn't have told them they had cancer. It's a, it's a part of the situation that you have to deal with. Maybe by simply, most cases, I think by discussing it. In some cases, treatment for the depression. It's common that we treat people with Alzheimer's with antidepressants who wouldn't be depressed. So let me, I'm also out of time, let me just summarize. I think that denial as I said, it's a psychological defense me mechanism. It's an unconscious process, at least as we use the term clinically. It's a prominent component of what I'm referring to in this broader sense of discordance, and I, I think that's a better way to think of it because that's really an interpersonal concept. You can't be discordant by yourself on a desert island. You have, there has to be somebody else in the picture with whom you're disagreeing. And obviously it has a major impact on decision-making and it's a source of a major burden for caregivers, but it is something that can be and should be worked with and addressed from early on in the disease process. Okay, I'm glad to take some questions. Do I have a few minutes for that? Yes. <clears throat> is Alzheimer's and dementia the same? And no, the Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. It's by far and away the most common form of dementia, but it's not the only one. And when, there are times where I'll, we'll see somebody in the office, and we know they have dementia, but we aren't quite sure yet what type of dementia. We may use that term. but. Dementia, the, the other common causes of dementia might be vascular disease of the brain, might be Lewy body dementia, sometimes less commonly frontotemporal dementia, although usually you can pick that up in distinction from Alzheimer's, not always. Um, so there, and there are many others that are much less common, Parkinson's disease, dementia, and so forth. So I think if we, if, when we have reason, and, and it's curious that many people think they're the same, but there are also many people who think, and I forget where we talked about this once, I think when we were trying to decide what to call our memory cafe, um, and it, 
do people, are people more fearful of the word Alzheimer's or dementia? Well, about half of them are more fearful of dementia, half of them are more fearful of Alzheimer's. So it's, it's very different. But some people will say, well, it's not really Alzheimer's, it's just dementia, just, just dementia. Or it's not really dementia, it's just Alzheimer's, you know, that sort of thing. So I would try to be as accurate as possible, but realizing that uh, a lot of times, at least early on, you can't be all that specific. Yes? cultural difference between the clinician and the patient and family. I'm just wondering what advice you have when, when uh, you need to be more culturally competent with this discussion. The, the, the didn't seem like your mic was on for the first part of that. So basically the question was, are clinicians more reluctant to discuss this when there's a cultural difference between the, the physician and the patient and the family. And I actually am not sure about that. One of, the, one of the limitations of practicing in the Upper Valley is that we don't have a lot of cultural distinctions here. Um, I see left-handed white people and I see right-handed, well, and I'm not being sort of facetious about that. I think it's an important question, important area, but it's not something that I have enormous experience with working here. I suspect Indeed, I, I, I suspect strongly that there are very, diff, very strong differences in how different cultures feel about whether or not someone has Alzheimer's and how accepting they are of the term. And one does need, if one is working with other cultures, one certainly needs to be sensitive to that. I don't think, but I think that physicians are reluctant to have this discussion even within the same culture. So it's, this is an issue that we all need to address. A very hard thing to do, but it's very uh, important for many, many reasons, of some of which I've tried to outline. Uh, oh, yes. Hi. You talked about uh, dementia in general. Some people think all dementia is uh, Alzheimer's. Could you contrast Alzheimer's with Lewy body dementia? Well, Lewy body dementia is a dementia that looks in some ways like Parkinson's disease. There are often features uh, that are similar to Parkinson's, such as tremor and masked face. The other features of Lewy body dementia that are common is there are frequent hallucinations, although it's a mistake to think that every person who's demented and hallucinates has Lewy body dementia. It's overdiagnosed for that reason. People with Alzheimer's hallucinate as well. And uh, there's, a much, there's a great deal of hour-to-hour um, -hour fluctuation in, in variability in people with Lewy bodies, and that's, that's more true in that disease than in Alzheimer's. So it's a common form of dementia, uh, and, but in many respects, the, all of the things I'm talking about today, although I, I don't even remember now, I think I use the word Alzheimer's most of the time, but all the things that I'm talking about would apply to almost any form of dementia as well as to Alzheimer's. Yes, back here. Hi. When you have a family that is, um, has high discordance and also high burnout for the caregiver, what are some of the suggestions you could give to kind of lessen the burden? Um, is more conversations needed between the patient and the family? Is more conversation needed? I would say probably yes, but when you say uh, there's a great deal of burnout, if you're, I think of burnout as the end stage of burden 
when if somebody has burned out, something else needs to happen, another caregiver needs to step in. If you're talking merely about severe burden, which, which is certainly common in people with discordance, then yes, I would say some conversation needs to happen. One has to assess first, where's the family stand on this? Are they the ones that are not wanting to talk about it even more or as much as the person who has the disease? Are they really trying, but they're not able to get through? And, and that will help figure out how to approach it. But yes, I think that I would say that in order to help lessen that burden, and, and again, if you listen to people in support groups, they will tell you their burden is much less, the disease isn't any better, but their burden is much less when they can have an open discussion with the person about the disease. Any other? The shy person here who gave me the question. I knew that couldn't be you, so I would give it to you. I'm wondering what programs such as Lumosity effect um, is on the progression of Alzheimer's or memory in general. What about the effect of Lumosity? Um, and other, elect, uh, uh, shall I describe them as expensive computer programs that you can get to help train the brain? I think that these are all the rage now. And the, what's interesting, though, is that the, the most data about Lumosity and other programs come from the makers of those programs. And the objective data is nowhere near as uh, impressive. If you take a computer, a computer program that teaches you how to uh, do a certain task, it's clear you'll be better at that task. Whether that generalizes, however, into other things is questionable. And my impression is that the people who, rely, who are most likely to use those computer programs are the ones who may not need it in the first place. People, once people have Alzheimer's, they're too frustrating. They really are too frustrating to do. Um, I, but I, you know, the data is, uh, the, 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 the jury is still somewhat out but I'm very skeptical about the value of that. You can get most of the same things from books that cost a fraction of what uh, the computer programs cost. Are they as likely to be used? That may be another matter, but I, I, uh, I don't think there's enough evidence to support spending hundreds of dollars on a computer program. There's one exception I would say to that. That AAR, is it? No. Uh, yeah, I think it is AARP, but I'm actually not sure now, has a program that you can buy for just $79 or $69 that is a driving stimulator and will help you be more aware of things that are coming up on the road. And it's pretty good. I've, I bought it because I wanted to try it out. Not that I'm having any problems with driving that I'm I mean, I'd never admit it. I'd never admit it if I did. Um, no, seriously, I was giving a talk and I wanted to see it. It wasn't that expensive. And some insurance companies will give it to you for free. And I think that I don't have evidence for this. I think that sort of thing, though, may be useful because it teaches you a very specific function but a very important one, that if it does help you be more observant on the road, that's a good thing. So that's one where I would, have an ex where I would uh, uh, think maybe it's worth pursuing. One real quick question. Um, how would you approach a family with a patient, with a, 
a, a person who has mild cognitive deficit um, who is using alcohol on a frequent basis more than the recommended amount for an elderly person. Um, how do you help them deal with their denial that the alcohol could be contributing somewhat to the deficit as well as to the dementia? Well, it's, it's a very good point and it comes up a lot. Um, and I think the first step is one needs to be very, very clear with the individual that <clears throat> Yes, and this is where it gets confusing and people split hairs because we know that there is data out there that suggests that one or two drinks for a male and one drink for a female may be helpful in lessening the risk of developing dementia. However, once somebody has any degree of cognitive impairment, any amount of alcohol is likely to worsen that, both acutely and chronically. And we're very, very clear and, and explicit about that. Many people who do have mild cognitive impairment, if they're still in the earliest phases where they're worried about it, might heed that advice. Others, if somebody needs to cut down on their drinking and isn't able to do so, then I think it becomes a problem for a substance abuse specialist. With the added emphasis that this is not only bad for you in lots of other ways, it's making your, the, your memory problem worse. Do we have time for more questions? Last. One more question. Hi, I have a, um, I'm a professional guardian and I uh, have a temporary, uh, temporary guardianship right now where there's a lot of uh, denial and discordance between the family members. The gentleman has actually progressed um, in his illness and you know, those feelings of anxiety and depression are coming up to the surface. He's got great medical care. He's part of a concierge program with a doctor. Um, so they're very much on top of it. The problem is um, the wife doesn't want to talk about the Alzheimer's with the husband. The children want to be brutally honest and are also in denial about the burden on the wife and don't understand why she can't give a shower, have him change his green beloved green flannel shirt, etc. Um, family meetings have been tried and what the doctor from both um, uh, his neurologist and his concierge doctor said, if we ever have to do another family meeting, we'd rather retire. <laughs> <laughs> so I came in as guardian and immediately put in a family visit schedule where they don't cross paths because what happens is he might not understand the words being spoken. Yeah, but he excuse me, you said a family visit with what? I didn't catch those a words. A family visit where uh, paths of the wife and children from a previous marriage don't cross. Because oh, I see. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is um, he picks up on the emotion and the tension and recently has been trying to elope out his second story window of his assisted living. Um, but anyway, I, it's hard to insulate him from this drama and I can't prevent him from feeling depressed and anxious, you know, um, but I do need to protect him from these family shenanigans. Um, I'm not interested in having a family meeting anymore because I don't feel that those are valuable. You know, am I going down the wrong path or what other suggestions do you have for me? It's a very difficult situation to be sure as you've discovered in the docs who are ready to retire. And I'm not one of them even though I am retiring, but um, <clears throat> and that's not the reason I'm retiring. But uh, I think that one has to make a I hope I didn't present, I probably did, present this in a way that says, well, you know, no matter how bad the situation is, if you just talk about it, everything is fine. That clearly doesn't always work. I think talking about it works 
a lot of the time, and that's why I, I said what I said, however, there are situations that are beyond that point, and that's why you as a guardian are involved, a public guardian. Nobody, the, I would assume that the family couldn't decide on a family member doing it. Um, and it may be that the best decision that you can make if you've made along with the others who have been involved in the care, the decision that the spouse is not able to change her point of view, that what you as a guardian needs to do is to limit her contact with the individual. Now you mentioned the children want to be brutally honest, and now maybe what you meant is they're being very kind and caring, but they're, you also may be talking about the, the brutal part is, that, is what I heard, and certainly this can be presented in a very hostile, attacking way. Against, oh, it's a stepmother. Ah, the plot thickens. Um, yeah. Because the, uh, they feel that she ought to be doing more than she's doing. I think if, the, if the, it comes to the point where she simply is unable to do that, then it may be necessary to meet alone with the children to discuss their feelings about this stepmother. And it's always a very difficult situation. I shouldn't say it's always, it's often a very difficult situation when there's a step spouse involved, um, stepmother involved. But I would think that the, that maybe one place to start is to, for those kids to deal with their resentment of the stepmother. I'm sure that isn't gonna be the whole solution, but it's something to think about. And I guess we should stop at this one. Thank you very much. So we'll reconvene.